and he handled it the only way he knew how, and it was to continue to work. He would come home from the hospital after getting his chemo treatment. He wouldn't come in the house. He'd go straight in the tractor. He'd go out in the field. He'd stop and throw up and keep going. Because what happens if you stop? Are you ever going to have to start it back up again? Exactly. He has told me many times, many years after, Mm -hmm. if I was going to leave this world, it was going to be by the skin of my teeth. If the angel of death was coming for me, we were both going to walk back because I was going to rip every single feather off of his wings. He was going to do everything he could in his power to not only fight it to stay here with us, but to provide for us. He was not going to leave us with nothing. Welcome to Ghost Writers Anonymous, an inspirational and interactive podcast where we create worlds through words and writing. I'm Kelsey, and today I'd like to know if you were a hero's ascent, what song would your hero's ascent be? I think it's called Dvork Symphony 9. It starts out as the Jaws theme, those first two notes, but then it goes into something way beyond that. And I imagine someone just fighting for the good, doing his damnedest, and then the fight is done. So that would be mine. When I think about a hero's ascent, it's usually because they've hit rock bottom and they have to pull themselves together and continue forward. Because that's what makes a hero, right? You're at rock bottom, you're against all odds, but you choose to go forward anyway. The one specifically that I think really shows strength and courage in the face of adversity is the song The Next Right Thing from Frozen 2. It makes me bowl my eyes out because it's full of grief, but it's also full of what comes after grief, which a lot of people don't talk about. For your hero's ascent, you're starting on step one. Yes. And my hero's ascent was on rung 11. Yeah, you're like boss battle level. (laughs) Yes. Yours is that small inkling of I need to start moving forward. Mm -hmm. And mine is where you have already made that journey and then you are executing, maybe in more ways than one. Going from step one to step two is the hardest. And that really is what defines a hero from everyone else because it's easy to be at the bottom and give up. It's easier to stay in motion once you're in motion, the law of inertia, but the energy to move forward when you're already tired, when you're already beaten down, when you're already grieving, when you're already at your lowest, continuing through that heaviness is, the epitome of a hero to me. I'm thinking way smaller scale of <laughs> the hardest step of cleaning your house is deciding to start. Yes. And then once you start, there it goes. I mean, really, that's just the essence of it. It's that or it's death. <laughs> you know, you can't fight the boss at the end of the dungeon. You have to go in the dungeon first. You have to take on all of the minions and find the boss. Either you could die before you enter the dungeon in woe, or you can die entering the dungeon with fire. Yes. So I think it's maybe damned if you do, damned if you don't. It How do you be... want to be remembered? Or it may be the same result, so at least I want to try. Mm. So that, to me, is the essence of a hero's ascent, the trying. Really, honestly, it's the placebo effect, and people don't realize it. There was a study about placebo. Two-thirds of the people presented improvement of some kind. It kind of reminds me of a meditative practice, centering your mind to be your stepping stone and to bend yourself to your own will. Yes. The pill is the crutch to do that. You think that, oh, it's this pill that's making me feel better, but you made yourself feel better because you allowed yourself to relax. 
and trust that this thing's working. It's you that's working. It's really quite a psychological thing because they've even found studies that if you believe that you're going to do good on a test, you will score higher. It's not a whole lot. It's not like you go from an F to an A, Mm -hmm. but you might go from an F to a D plus. We were told in sports to envision success and the coach would walk us through a meditative scenario of us winning a race. I'd never done anything like that at that age. I think there is something to that. The brain is quite the powerful thing because it literally can be mind over matter. Not everything. Not everything can be mind over matter, but just trying to think positively or coming up with three positive things when you wake up can change your day quite a bit. When I was a kid, I hated getting up in the morning for school. I would lay there and I'd be like, okay, you move your right foot and then your left foot and then your foot's touching the floor then your other foot's touching the floor and now you're sitting up. Thinking it through in my head was enough for me to actually get up. I think I just wasn't sleeping well. It's hard being a student and maybe even your circadian rhythm wasn't set to a student schedule where you wake up in the morning. I think I have a night circadian rhythm that was my hardest part also was waking up. I don't really have a problem waking up in the middle of the day same (laughs) now but i'm also on a night schedule and i think that matches my circadian rhythm more teens their circadian rhythm it's very normal to get tired around 1 a.m and then get up at 9 or 10 teens need more sleep because their body and their brain especially is going through more change and growth that's why little kids if they don't get their nap in they're falling asleep into their dinner they need sleep to grow it's just different when you're a teen because your body is trying to find the rhythm that's why kids stay up late at night. And I do remember that wanting to sleep so much in the afternoon and nap and sleep in on weekends. But if you're a student in high school, if you're in any sort of extracurricular activity, one or two, your weekends are done. My topic is way more escapism than dreams. Escapism is really our topic then. We can still point. talk about weird dreams. If we you can, like. yeah. <laughs> So this book is called The Lost Apothecary by Sarah Penner. It's a story within a story. So she does this thing where she alternates chapters. The main character, Caroline, is in present day, but then we start hearing about Nella. Nella lived in the late 1700s and she has a shop that she got from her mom who was an apothecary, who specifically helped women with menstruation issues, birth, postpartum, grief. She was very close with her mother and she was 19 or 20 when her mother passed away. She meets a man. She gets pregnant. They're not married. So he's like, oh yeah, I'll come back and we'll get married. Turns out he was already married and had many other women on the line. He gave her a concoction and it caused her to have a miscarriage. Not only was it painful, it scarred her. She, with her knowledge, got revenge. But back to Caroline. She is in London, present day. Turns out her husband cheated on her. She finds out this was supposed to be their 10 year anniversary and Caroline does something called mudlarking which I think you would love. I'm already interested in the name. The river tames. When the tide goes down you can look and see what the river has brought up and she finds a small bottle. Oh that looks like an apothecary's bottle. The story of this bottle is tied to Nella and her shop. Pretty much the story of what happens to Nella is unraveled through Caroline researching it, escaping her worldly problems, her life by diving into the life of an apothecary in the late 1700s. And I love that because she didn't mean for it to apply to her life, but it does. It's sort of like finding meaning in anything, which I will always do. And it's crazy to think that this bottle that got thrown in the river is found. We were just talking about how there is no coincidence. She needed this story and it came to her. James, her husband, shows up to London. She has to confront the things that she's trying to escape. 
Well, now I'm starting to think that Caroline is the continued story of a story that started over 200 years before she even was created. I see it more as Caroline is the woman in a position that would come to Nella. And so it's almost like Nella is still helping Caroline find a solution, but not necessarily in the way that she had used to do it. It's like a grief factor, but also a murder mystery it feel. It really is. Caroline is going through this murder mystery, trying to find out all this information that she can to put the pieces together. Meanwhile, you know more than she does. <laughs> so I'm going to just read a couple excerpts showing her using this as an escape. This is going to be in the very beginning of the book, giving you a look into Caroline's mind now that she's in London and away from her husband, James. He was like, are you really sure you want to do that? That's really far away. Because they are from Ohio. So they're from the States. It dawned on me then that since touching down at Heathrow this morning, I hadn't cried once over James. And wasn't that exactly why I ran off to London anyway? To cut away, if only for a few minutes, the malignant mass of grief. I flew to London to breathe and that was damn well what I'd done, even if some of that time had been spent in a veritable mud pit. I knew that keeping the vial was exactly what I should do. Not only because I felt a subtle attachment to whoever this vial once belonged, but because I'd found it on a mudlarking tour that wasn't even part of the original faded itinerary with James. I'd come to this riverbed alone. I'd stuck my hands into the muddy crevice of two rocks. I'd staved off tears. This glass object, delicate and yet still intact, somewhat like myself, was proof that I could be brave, adventurous, and do hard things on my own. I dropped the vial into my pocket. Okay, so this section is when she's met Gaynor, they become friends, and she's helping her research. They're not having a lot of luck. A few results appeared, and my heart jumped as I caught the headline of one newspaper article. Offenses of deception and murder, Middlesex. But the article, dated 1825, seemed too late, and it turned out to be about a male apothecary who'd been killed after stealing a horse. My shoulders slumped. What else could we try? Gaynor pursed her lips to one side. Well, we can't give up on the newspaper search just yet. Maybe we need to nix the word apothecary and try some others, like Bear Alley. Which, the bottle has a picture of a little bear on it, and it says Bear Alley underneath it. But it's worn, so you can really only see the B and the L-L-E-Y. So they narrowed it down to Bear Alley. But there are countless other resources to search for. For example, our manuscript database. She trailed off as she flicked to a new webpage. By definition, manuscripts include handwritten documents like journals, diaries, and even family estate papers is often very personal information. But our manuscript collection also includes some printed material, typed scripts, printed logs, and so on. I nodded, recalling this from my schooling. Gaynor picked up a pen and began to twirl it between her fingers. We have millions of manuscripts in our collection, but searching this poses its own problems. You see, the newspaper records are instantly available on screen since they've been digitized, but the manuscripts must be ordered. You request them, wait in a queue, which may be a couple of days, and then the desk delivers the actual document for you to review. So digging into this could take days. She nodded slowly, twisting her face, like a doctor delivering bad news to a patient. Yes, if not weeks or months. The magnitude of such a search was exhausting to even think about, especially given that the story of the apothecary was little more than myth as it stood. What if the entire search was in vain because there wasn't even a real person to uncover? I sat back in my chair, defeated. It seemed I couldn't sort truth from lie in any part of my life. Chin up, Gaynor said, nudging my knee with her own. You're clearly intrigued by this sort of thing, which is rare in and of itself. I remember well my first week working at the library. I had no idea what I was doing, but I loved the old maps more than anyone else here. People like us need to stick together and keep at it. 
keep added. Though I didn't know what exactly I wanted to find or if there was even anything to find, one thing couldn't be ignored. The door at the back of Back Alley aligned perfectly with the old maps. And whether the apothecary worked in the area or not, the idea of an old walkway or street known only to those who lived 200 years ago but still buried underneath the city captivated me. She's very closely knitted this together into her life because it's something for her to grasp onto. Her doing this research is her escape. It's easier to address someone or something else than your own self. Even though this is helping her, it's better to put that attention on someone that she's never even met. They are long, long gone. Yeah. And she doesn't realize that it's helping her because she's trying to figure out this mystery in the past with one bottle. And she just keeps getting these little breadcrumbs and she's realizing things about herself along the way. Gaynor is very friendly and they become fast friends and she's supporting her in her research. That's exactly what Caroline needs to keep moving forward and discovering more about herself than she realizes. I'm reading a book currently about a character that is working in a library and she is getting to know and make friends. It's very identical to this. What I think is interesting is her curiosity. She found this thing and just wants to know more about it. She talks a lot about how her life back in Ohio, everything was safe watering her down slowly and I feel that man this could have been my life <laughs> she realizes how unhappy she is and they've been wanting to have a kid wanting to have a baby was just trying to fill this void that she was missing in her life James also had a void missing in his life but he decided to go to someone else to fill it Caroline's eyes at the end are opened and she can't unsee what she's seen it's very much like the devil card or the Sir Nuno's card in my druid deck you're waking up you're starting to see things for what it is around you and you have two choices. You can either wake up and make a change or you can go back to sleep and let things continue down the path that they are. But the only person keeping you chained there is yourself. Yes. The original apothecary shop was a shop that people could go to. But then when it became a sinister apothecary shop, she actually put in a false wall. It almost looked like a storeroom and there was a barrel of rotting grain and they would slip a letter in there. She would read the letter and she would let them in through a false wall. I love Love that. Yeah, it's so cool. The fact that this woman did all of that herself, she can't have some carpenter come and do it because then he would know. Do you think she has a grudge and she wrote a novel to overcome it? Or do you think it's simply a book idea to her? I think maybe she experienced some kind of betrayal. Either she was just testing out a character or an idea that she doesn't feel. It's an exercise for her. Or she felt it very deeply and wanted to put it to paper. You know, I could probably see her coming up with the idea of Nella being a killer apothecary putting this real sad spin on why she changed from being a helpful apothecary to a killer apothecary but I think Caroline is pretty close to home I don't know for sure I don't know the author I haven't done a whole lot of biography search on her but it seems like Caroline is a personal touch you wouldn't really learn that from a little blurb about the author. You'd have to watch interviews with them and piece it all together over time on why their character came out this way. So this is her debut book. I think a lot of authors in their debut novels put a piece of their soul into it and probably thereafter. Sarah Pinner is the debut author of The Lost Apothecary to be translated into 16 languages worldwide. She works full-time in finance and is a member of the Historical Novel Society and the Women's Fiction Writers Association. 
She and her husband live in St. Petersburg, Florida with their miniature dachshund, Zoe. There is a piece to the puzzle. She works in a women's study. I'm starting to think of her less as a jilted lover. She works full-time in finance and James is an accountant. This section is her and James. He just got to London. James is talking. I'm trying to level with you, Caroline. I'm here now telling you that I'll do counseling. I'll do soul searching. I'll do whatever. My solo trip to London was meant to be like a counseling session for me until, of course, James showed up at my door and his flippant manner angered me further. Let's start the soul searching now, I said. Why did you do it? Why did you let it continue after the promotion event? I realized that despite my desire to know the gruesome what and how, what I most wanted to know right that moment was why. A question struck me at once, something I hadn't considered before. Are you scared of trying for a baby? Is that why? He looked down, shook his head. Not at all. I want a baby just as much as you do. A small weight lifted inside of me, but the problem-solving part of me wished he'd said yes. Then we could hold the truth up like a diamond, set it in front of the light, and address the real issue. Then why? I resisted the urge to spoon-feed him any more possibilities, and I brought the rim of the wine glass back to my lips. I guess I'm not entirely happy, he said tiredly, like the words alone exhausted him. My life has been so safe, so fucking predictable. Our life. I corrected. He nodded, conceding this. Our life, yes, but I know you want safe. You want predictable and a baby needs that too. And I want predictable. I want safe. I shook my head. No, you have that all wrong. You didn't support me applying to Cambridge because it was so far away. You, I wasn't the one to rip up the application, he said, his voice like ice. Undeterred, I went on. You didn't want kids early in our marriage because of their burden while working long hours. You begged me to take the job at the farm because it was secure, comfortable. James tapped two fingers against the white tablecloth. You accepted the job, not me, Caroline. All this research and learning about the apothecary has changed her to express how she feels. Undeterred, she continued with what she was saying. She wasn't listening to his responses. She was like, this is how I feel. This is what happened. And what you say doesn't matter. But she wasn't like that in the beginning of the book. It sounds to me like a spat where people are fighting for something that's already gone and they have reached their last sword trying to blame the other party. It's like, well, you wanted safe. No, you wanted safe. It sounds like a very ugly fight that no one leaves happy. Mm -hmm. Everyone leaves feeling not heard and nothing was accomplished. It was a dirty fight. Blaming the other person because they didn't communicate at all. You can still heavily imply something without actually saying it out loud. And it's not wrong for that person to understand the implications. He discouraged her from going to Cambridge. Compromise what you want for that other person. And she did because she wanted kids early on in their marriage. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, I'm trying to climb the corporate ladder. I'll be working long hours and going to all these things. It's too exhausting. So she continued to compromise what she wanted until she was buried under this heavy weighted blanket of safe and predictable. And turns out that's not what he wanted either, but mm -hmm. neither of them expressed what they really wanted on the inside. I don't think either of them were ready to be a partner. Maybe they were going through the motions of what they thought a partnership should be, but it sounds like they both wanted separate goals and those goals didn't align with one another and they were unwilling to, first of all, admit that to themselves and then second, of all admit that to their partner you can have different goals i don't think there's anything wrong with that he wanted to be an accountant successful in the meaning of making money her successful was following her passion which was history she wanted to go to cambridge and all these things she compromised for his goal but he never budged for her goal so you can have two different goals but it's about working together it's like the chariot you need both 
oxen in the yoke to be equal so it pulls the most efficient way. But if one ox wants to go to the left and one ox wants to go to the right, you're never going to go anywhere. But then there's the emotional aspect of it too. The balance of I carried the weight on this chapter. Now you carry the weight on this chapter. And that's really, I think, what went wrong for them. Caroline didn't stand up for herself more, but also that James didn't really care what she wanted. And I am a very security driven person. I think security is my passion. (laughs) So I feel like I can deeply relate to James in this. And it seems like in my personal life, I only reached out for a passion if I was stable. Mm -hmm. I didn't dare if I wasn't. Will you have a home to go to? Do you have a job to buy groceries and pay bills? But if people didn't reach for their passions in this world, then it would be very bland. Those are the most inspiring people. And that's why I like them. I needed to see Caroline changing into this person that she had always been, but she had just stuffed down to fit James's image. Yeah. Or what she thought she needed to be to coincide with him for his life because she was never putting herself first. She had found text messages on his phone of the girl saying remember last Friday and she's thinking back he came home and had sex with me I was angry for her when I read that he's actively trying for a baby with his wife right after he just fucked his mistress yeah it's like starting a baby on the wrong footing the wrong foundation yeah this part is a little bit of a wrap up talking to James again He did something really dumb and he got sick and he went to the hospital. She can be angry at him, but she still cares. My breath quickened. Here we go, I thought. Sitting cross-legged at the end of his bed, a corner of his bed sheet over my lap. It almost felt like we were back in Ohio, back into our normal routine. But we would never know our old normal again. I'm quitting my job at the farm, I said. James paused, a bite of potato suspended in front of his mouth. He set the fork down. Caroline, a lot's going on. Are you sure you don't want to? I rose from the edge of the hospital bed, standing tall. I could not fall victim to this talk of reason. Not again. Let me finish, I said softly. I looked outside, my gaze scanning the London skyline. A panorama of new against old. Trendy shopfront windows reflected the pearl gray dome of St. Paul's Cathedral, and red tour buses sputtered past long-standing landmarks. If there was anything that the last few days had taught me, it was the importance of shining new light on old truths hidden in dark places. This trip to London and finding the light blue vial, the apothecary, had exposed them all. I turned away from the window to face James. I need to choose me. I need to prioritize me. I paused, wringing my hands together. Not your career, not our baby, not stability, and not what everyone else wants of me. This book, for me, is the little blue vial. I would call it purple vial, based on the cover. Yes. But it's that beautiful color of those Tootsie Pops. I thought it was blue, but the flavor is grape. A royal blue purple. I see a lot of blue undertones. I've got it. Yeah, that's exactly it. If purple is red and blue together, this pulls way more from the blue than it does the red. Compromise was necessary. What I also really love about this book that I didn't realize was significant until I read it is this little beetle right here. Green beetle is a very important part of the end of the story. I just hear them smacking the windows. They run into you. They're just kamikaze in beetle form. Yeah. Built like tanks. Their legs are spiky, so they grab anything. They get in your hair. You might as well just shave your head. And then they fall on their backs and they can't get up. And it's like, man, these things are helpless. Truly. They're just helpless wrecking balls with wings. So I'm curious about the symbolism of this green beetle. It's not even symbolism. It is the beetles themselves that you will learn about. The band 
and the Beatles. <laughs> like, is that but where we're going? But they did come from England. Yeah, no, like, is that where this is? No, no, literally this Beatle. I yeah. have such a queue of books. Eventually. You can read this one before you read Sunshine if you want. I think you'll enjoy that one better. Really? Because I'm nervous with the marital arguments. It was hard for me to hear even you reading it. There's something about them. They bother me deeply. It's very few. I think there's only like maybe four spots where she really engages with him. You can tell it's a woman that is used to just letting someone else take control because that's all she's known for the past 10 years of their marriage. It's not like this huge punches him in the face to take control. She takes control in the right manner for mm-hmm. herself. Yes. And she no longer needs him to A, agree with her or B, to tell her reason. I'm not going to listen to his talk of reason. She's okay with what she has decided. Your book focused on a circumstantial escape, finding the vial. She could have just left it there, but she decided to take it further. I think she, in a subconscious level, was needing to focus on something other than herself. Absolutely. And then my book focuses on a way more spiritual or metaphysical escape. Wouldn't necessarily call it a dream, but we can talk about it. Okay. Still heavily involved in this series. I am going back to the first book in A Court of Thorns and Roses by Sarah J. Maas. So that is the name of the series, but that's also the name of the first book. We're going to the very end of that first book. All you need to know is there is a female protagonist and she is stuck in a prison cell. I suppose I sank so far into myself that it took something extraordinary to pull me out again. I was watching the light dance along the damp stones of the ceiling of my cell like moonlight on water when a noise traveled to me down through the stones rippling across the floor i was so used to the strange fiddles and drums of the fairies that when i heard the lilting melody i thought it was another hallucination sometimes if i stared at the ceiling long enough it became the vast expanse of the starry night sky and i became a small unimportant thing that blew away in the wind i looked toward the small vent in the corner of the ceiling through which the music entered my cell. The source must have been far away, for it was just a faint stirring of notes. But when I closed my eyes, I could hear it more clearly. I could see it, as if it were a grand painting, a living mural. There was beauty in this music, beauty and goodness. The music folded over itself like batter being poured from a bowl, one note atop another, melting together to form a whole, rising, filling me. It wasn't wild music, but there was a violence of passion in it, a swelling kind of joy and sorrow. I pulled my knees to my chest, needing to feel the sturdiness of my skin. The music built a path, an ascent founded upon archways of color. I followed it, walking out of that cell, through layers of earth, up and up, into fields of cornflowers, past a canopy of trees and into the open expanse of sky. The pulse of the music was like hands that gently pushed me onward, pulling me higher, guiding me through the clouds. I'd never seen clouds like these. In their puffy sides, I could discern faces, fair and sorrowful. They faded before I could view them too clearly, and I looked into the distance to where the music summoned me. It was either a sunset or sunrise. The sun filled the clouds with magenta and purple, and its orange-gold rays blended with my path to form a band of shimmering metal. I wanted to fade into it, wanted the light of that sun to burn me away, to fill me with such joy that I would become a ray of sunshine myself. This wasn't music to dance to, it was music to worship 
music to fill in the gaps of my soul, to bring me to a place where there was no pain. I didn't realize I was weeping until the wet warmth of a tear splashed upon my arm. But even then, I clung to the music, gripping it like a ledge that kept me from falling. I hadn't realized how badly I didn't want to tumble into that deep dark how much I wanted to stay here among the clouds and color and light. I let the sounds ravage me, let them lay me flat and run over my body with their drums, up and up, building to a palace in the sky, a hall of alabaster and moonstone, where all that was lovely and kind and fantastic dwelled in peace. I wept, wept to be so close to that palace, wept from the need to be there. Everything I wanted was there, the one I loved was there. The music rose louder, grander, faster, from wherever it was played, a wave that peaked, shattering the gloom of my cell. A shuddering sob broke from me as the sound faded into silence. I sat there trembling and weeping, too raw and exposed, left naked by the music and the color in my mind. When the tears had stopped but the music still echoed in my every breath, I lay on my pallet of hay, listening to my breathing. The music flittered through my memories, binding them together, making them into a quilt that wrapped around me, that warmed my bones. I think it's a beautiful standalone excerpt. She didn't actually leave the cell, but she was allowed a moment's reprieve for her mind to faintly hear something and then build this world that she went to and escaped in. It was a cool thing to read in the moment in the book because it's very much how I think of my dreams. I love sleeping. I very rarely have bad dreams. I believe that when I go to that space that it is a real place. But when you read the second book in the series, you revisit this scene, it's referenced, and you discover, not quite a spoiler alert, that this was actually a gift given to her by someone that knew that she was suffering and in pain and needed something to hold on to. She she was given this gift of a vision. She doesn't know it until it's revealed. It just bowled me over. I think that made that more powerful. There's a lot in this book that sets you up that's referenced in the second book. A wowee moment. It's a great thing in and of itself, but then when you hear the deeper meaning behind it, it just sends it home. You're seeing it on the surface value, but the intent is revealed later. Yes, if you go to a music concert and then five years later, you are friends with someone or date someone and you both realize, hey, you were at that concert too? Yeah. And then you're like, man, that's so weird. Well, it wouldn't have mattered if you'd found that out or not, but it made it even more special that even if you didn't see that person there, the possibility that you could have seen that person there made knowing them that more special. That's kind of the feeling that it was reading that scene and then hearing about it in the second book. I really love her imagery. The notes were like batter being poured from a bowl layered on top of each other and I can just imagine it melting into one another. That was also my favorite quote because I see it so well. I'm a very visual image-based person. I think I would thrive in an ASL environment, American Sign Language, because if I'm seeing an action motivated with the whole body, I feel like I understand it more than someone just talking to me. Yeah. And I have noticed that I have the most communication breakdowns with people that don't gesticulate. Well, maybe it's because you rely on body language to tell you the true intent of the message. Basically, what drew me in was 
how she painted this picture. I don't know anyone who doesn't love a sunrise or a sunset. I think it is one of the most beautiful things. It reminded me of the scene in Snow White at the very end when Snow White is awake and the prince leads her to his palace. Yes, they're going to a physical palace, but then you look up in the sky and the clouds have formed this palace. Cumulus puffy clouds that are so fluffed the hell up that they look like a mountain in the sky and I am very attracted to that sort of majesty in this world. She was ascending out of the cell. It created these steps. She's walking up and up and up into the heavens and there's something very releasing about that. Yeah. Almost like an out-of-body experience for her. You said mm-hmm. it was a vision, but it was almost like stepping out of her body in her current situation to find reprieve somewhere else. Yeah. And if that is not an escapism, I don't know what yeah, it is. Yeah, it was a very literal thing, but it even says, was it another hallucination, this music? I'm not sure it was. And then we find out the music wasn't and the vision wasn't. She was made to see this. Yeah. When I dream, it is a continuation dream. I go to a place that is similar enough to this world. I can see where my brain pieced that world together. But I also firmly believe that someone is showing me this, someone or something, for some greater reason that I will never discover until the end. That's what I believe. And my feelings on it so closely matched that excerpt and then were reaffirmed in the second book. It gave me goosebumps. And not all people see dreams that way. Some people don't dream or they don't recall their dream. I think that's unfortunate because it's so special to me, but that's just a joy in this world that I have found. And I know that some people do relate. Like, here's an example. My grandma passed away last week. My aunt had offhandedly mentioned that my grandma received a dream from her own father when he died asking for forgiveness for her childhood, for his drinking. Even though he was gone, I can relate to that. Not someone asking for my forgiveness, but visiting me after death. I've definitely heard that people maybe not dream, but they'll see their grandparent or the person that's passed away when they pass away. Like they've left their body and they go visit someone and then they're gone. And people will often say that they didn't know yet at the time that their family member had passed away, but they were being visited. Wait, Mom, is that you? Sometimes they'll say something and sometimes they won't. I believe that. I believe it too. (laughs) This was an old friend of mine. He had died. And within the next couple of nights, I had a dream about him. We were in a cafeteria. He was walking away. He wasn't eating. And I was sitting at a table with my friends, people that he knew. And I summoned him to come sit with us. And he was a very quiet guy. And I knew that he didn't want to. And I liked to chastise him. Come on, sit with us, sit with us. And he kept walking. And when I woke up, I firmly believe that I saw him moving through a space from one world to the next. Mm. I think he was continuing his journey and that was me with my earthly friends still very much alive inviting him to come sit with us and he didn't sit with us because A, that matches what he would have done in real life but also because he was no longer an earthly being. I didn't even look over my shoulder to know where he was going. I just took it for what it was. When I woke up I knew that there was more to it. I do believe that dreams are a space where you meet with other people on different planes. So I think it's possible even if it's not a family member, they still try to find a way to communicate. I like watching the Long Island Medium, a little reality show, but she'll be in the grocery store. Has your father passed? Yeah. Did he like books or did he like this? Yeah. Well, did your mom also pass? Yeah. Well, they're together. People who can see ghosts. Sometimes I like to let my mind wander and think, are they schizophrenic? 
I think we talked about this one Did time. We? I heard of someone who was schizophrenic, but their hallucination was a car horn. If you lived in a big city, you would never know it was a hallucination. Man, can you hear that car horn? No. Sometimes I wonder, people that I love, if I was able to visit them in a dream, if maybe I couldn't, because they're not receptive to that idea of the great beyond. Yeah. Whatever that is. It doesn't even have to be from a religious standpoint, but they're really closed off. They just think when you die, you die. I believe that there's a receptiveness. I believe that if I don't want to see or experience something, then it won't come to me. Yeah. Kind of like how you hear in scripture, I am there for all who look. Yes. It's a door and the only person who can touch that door is yourself and you can either open it and walk to him or close it and walk away it's always your choice that's the whole point of free will is that god allows us that choice i think there's so much in the universe and i think we've talked about this before you're only available to what you allow in i am i am what though is that a translation error what's wrong but then i'm like you know i am everything when you're growing up you envision him as a person like a man with a beard somewhere <laughs> in the sky. As you get older, you realize that's not even it. He's not a person. That's why he's described as a Holy Spirit. Jesus was him as a person. So at that point, I feel like Jesus is a demigod because he's half man, half God. God. <laughs> yeah. So is that not the definition of a demigod? I don't think that he was ever made to be a person unless you believe in Jesus, then that is the closest thing you could get. Yeah. And even then, I am what has been, what will be, and what will to come. Something of that sort. It's an everlasting statement. And so that's what I think of for dreams. I believe my dream is my everlasting. This is going to get a little radical, but I believe that God has something different for all of us. And he even says that I have planned your life before you left your mother's womb. And who says that your life has to be on the golden streets of heaven if that's not what he's designed for you, if that's not what fits for you? Oh, that's interesting. I never even thought of that. And you think cowboys, they want a dirt road. They want their horses. They want their open fields. That's what heaven is for them. Mm. That mimics their lifestyle. That feeds their soul. They wouldn't want to live in a mansion on a golden street. Oh, okay. We're hitting on something, but someone had told me this once. When you die, there is this door in a desert or somewhere desolate. When you walk through that door, sometimes there's nothing on the other side. Sometimes there's something on the other side or maybe more shallow or more deep, but it's mm. different for everybody. And the thought behind that is when you go through that door, the portal, the other side, whatever you believed in is what's there. So for some people, when they walk there, they're like, yeah, there's nothing here. I'm just on the other side of a door. That's because they believe that there was nothing. Is it wrong? Is it bad? No, they created their own device. Vine. Mm. And I kind of believe a little bit of that too. I think that if you're a cowboy and you want dirt roads and that is your life everlasting, then I hope that's what you get yeah. when you die. And if you want to die and there just be blackness, some people are very comfortable in dark rooms, no sound. That ain't for me. I kind of panic. Yeah. But people <laughs> love that because maybe it reminds them of being in the womb again. I don't know. Maybe they were born in a new moon in a dark winter day and they're like, darkness? I I really want to be here. I would be unnerved. I've never heard that, but that does make a lot of sense. And it's kind of a hard thing to pin down. It all goes down to how do you want to translate it? Not what someone is translating for you. Not yeah. what the pastor's saying. Not what the preacher's saying. I've been to church and felt, I don't think that's how I interpreted that scripture. Well, that's fine. If that's how that person wants to interpret it, that is their truth. I just translated how I want to believe it. They are living their life XYZ and you're yeah. living it ABC. I truly believe that the Bible and the church are guiding lights. I don't think they're rules. 
I think that they are soft guidelines to be a good person. That's mm-hmm. the whole point of Christianity. And I think a lot of religions are like that. I don't think it's meant to be taken as literal as how a lot have made it out to be because if you are into the New Testament and the gospel where Jesus' teachings are very abstract. He uses parables. All who have ears, please listen. If you are ready to hear it, then hear it. If you're not, then you won't. If you have opened yourself up to it, then that message is there. If you haven't, you're going to leave here very confused, which even his disciples said, we don't understand what the hell you just said. Tell us again. And it's actually very clever. Why do we read books? Why do we listen to music? It's an abstract idea out there that we're listening to and translating to apply to our own lives. Yeah, whatever resonates with us won't resonate with the other person. And especially because man being the way that man is, it makes sense that God would speak in parables if he lays down a rule that he thinks is pretty clear and concise, it's going to get twisted or mistranslated or misused. I understand the Old Testament as God trying to shape us while we were still in an infant stage of our religion, and that's why he was so heavy-handed. I think of it as the Old Testament was the paternal, and then the New Testament (laughs) is the maternal. I like that, actually, quite a bit. I've not thought of it that way. The only way I can justify it, I think the Old Testament can be very scary. Telling people to murder out an entire tribe. Are we talking about the same God? Exactly. Flooded the earth, Sodom and Gomorrah. You get into a huge mindfuck over it and you're like, I don't really know what to believe. I think the New Testament is a good place to start. The Gospels is a good place to start because it is very loving and forgiving. Once you learn that, then you can digest more of the Old Testament stories. One story that I still struggle with, Job. He literally used Job in a bet with the devil. Yeah, that also bothered me. Job had a good life. He had- Praised God. He was a good follower of the Lord. And the devil said, well, I bet he wouldn't follow you if bad things happened to him. He's only praising you because positive things are happening. And God said, bet. He really struck Job down. He lost his farm. Pretty much everything. In the midst of it all, Job continued to praise the Lord and be thankful for what he did have. Good on Job. I think I would struggle. Yeah. It's hard not to feel forsaken. He let the devil do those things to Job. He's allowing evil to wreck Job's life, all for the sake of making Job prove that he was a good man. And I struggled with that, with loss through death, letting go and an acceptance, which is why it's nice to dream about them. My uncle who died, I tried to find him. He was the first person that I started to dream about and he didn't want to be found. He made that very clear. I don't dream about him anymore. And I think that was his closure. He's somewhere else. I don't know where that somewhere else is. And I stopped looking for him because that's what he wanted. And all the dreams were me seeing him in a crowd of people. I'm calling out to him and he's hearing me, but he's not acknowledging me. And then when he would acknowledge me, he turned around to say something to me and then I would wake up. You hear about this mystery in the Bible. All will be revealed at the end. I love that anticipation of I'm not allowed to know because it would ruin the magic of living and I think that I was made to wake up because whatever he was trying to say was too much of a reveal. Sort of like when my grandma was trying to tell me that Quidley was dying but her words were scrambled and I couldn't hear them. I liked my uncle. He liked me but his death was different. His life was different. And who knows? He might feel shame. Maybe. Or maybe he's not ready yet to face the things 
that have happened to him. And I don't have an answer for that. It was still closure to me, not having closure because I understood that is it. Drawing the line, it's a mystery because he wants it to be. And that's almost easier to accept than just not knowing entirely. It took me getting older to realize that. I dream very rarely. And when I do, it's not necessarily that they're vivid. It's an overload of details sometimes for me. When I was a kid, I had a recurring nightmare that I was on this big iron bridge and my grandparents, my mom's dad and my step-grandma were just hanging nonchalantly from this bridge and I didn't know how to help them. Sometimes they would fall and I would wake up. Sometimes they would fall and I would not necessarily make a barge appear, but I was like, something could catch them and my mind would make a barge. Not necessarily that I had control over it. And sometimes I would run and get help, but I always woke up and there was no resolution. I had a dream once. It was almost like a Scooby-Doo setting. Big old Victorian house and it's storming outside and there's a tornado. Wind is blowing. There's this rundown shed or this house. And one of my friends from college, she's like, let's go in the house. I'm sure there's a basement or something. And I'm looking at this house and there's lights on. No, let's not. There's something in the house. I can sense it. It was just a weird sensation. It was like I could almost feel the wind and the rain and the tumultuous weather. And then she's going in the house and I'm like, no. It's almost like this foreshadowing of something. I am excited about that dream. You just described a scene that I would choose to live over and over in my mind. And I do vicariously through Scooby-Doo or the Rocky Horror Picture Show or Clue. Did I ever tell you my zombie dream? I was in South Dakota with my family and we had a fifth camper. I dreamed that we were at this park kind of near Mount Rushmore and I was with my niece walking through this tunnel and then we get to this camp with this big high fence. It's like an RV park. They let us in and we go into the bathhouse and this lady is acting weird. Haley, let's Let's go. And so we leave the bathhouse and things are starting to crescendo. I can feel it, but I don't know what's wrong yet. Zombies start coming and zombies are one of my biggest fears. So we hurry and we climb into this tree because where else can we go? I guess I'll preface. There was a guy there. He was caring for my nephew. He had gone into this camper with him and we are climbing this tree. I hear a little kid laughing and then it turns into screaming. The camper door opens and I felt myself move And I said, Haley, don't look. And I cover her eyes as my nephew comes out. And I wake up with a start. But was he a zombie? Yes. My least favorite monster, especially when they became real big with The Walking Dead. Everyone's like, watch it, watch it. It wasn't my thing. This book exchange where you send a book off and you get one back. I'd gotten a zombie book. (laughs) Of course I did. I read it. It was all right. But it wasn't my thing. I am so unnerved because I believe that zombies exist vicariously in the idea of tweakers, drug addicts. They're basically zombies. They basically are. Their mind isn't their own. Their innards are eaten up. Their mind is eaten up. They're twitching like some grotesque horror movie. Scratching. Scratching. Acting like monsters, beating people up, stealing stuff, laying in the street, masturbating in front of people. Yeah, no, truly. For me, when I drive home at night after work, you see these silhouettes of jolting tweakers and I just pretend that they're zombies. That was the first time ever in my life I had jolted awake. I was sweating. My heart was pounding. I was awake. And it was 5 a.m. exactly when I awoke. I did not go back to sleep. 
Five is a number for instability. Well, there was a lot of instability going on in my life at that point, <laughs> especially for my niece and nephew. It was one of the most vivid dreams that I think I've ever had. A couple months afterwards, I could just envision all of the faces of the people that I saw. Not that I recognized any of them, but my brain had given them details. And this guy, I realize now that it was probably mimicking my nephew's dad. Like a corruption factor is sort of what I'm Nefarious. getting. Nefarious. Yeah. The kid was laughing and you felt an under tone of some greater evil happening but the innocence of a child doesn't realize that because they trust with everything why would you not trust your parent because they're there to care for you unfortunately yeah. that's not true evil always. is in this world and they take the faces mm. of people you trust the most and that what was another interesting thing about my excerpt was when she's ascending into this palace this bigger place she's surrounded by these clouds and in the sides of the clouds as she's walking by them are these faces that she maybe knows but doesn't quite know mm. are they wisps of people she's known and knows no longer that she's going to know that is so relatable in those dreams you said that there's these faces that have details or there's people that you should know but you can't see their entire features yeah and i really like the anonymity of dreams in that way because when you are dreaming i think that you're no longer corporeal so why would you have your corporeal body in a place that doesn't require it there your body isn't glorified it's just this broad paint stroke sometimes just a blur doesn't yeah. look like them but you know it's there yeah, you can feel it i prefer the vague blur of i know who that is i don't know how i know who that is but i do versus the physical form i just like abstract things like that yeah i think your brain accepts that it's that person without giving it the details better because it's getting details in the world around you yes you're concentrating on feelings your friends like let's go into this victorian home and you're like that's uh, not. No. There's yeah. something in there. Let's go hide in this weird machine shop that has no lights. And she's like, there's a tornado coming. And yeah. I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> Even creepier machine yeah. shops. We're going to take the toilet apart and we're not going to panic. Do you hear that? It sounds yeah. like a femme fatale sharpening her knives.